As I've asked for book suggestions over the last few months, there's a single title that's come up time and time again from women of all ages and generations. I could give you a second to take a guess, but I think that hint almost gives it away anyway. The book is Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And ever since its publication in 1970, it served as a sort of guidebook for girls preparing to navigate middle school, puberty, and all of the other confusing things that come with them. It's the summer before sixth grade, and Margaret is the new kid in town. She quickly befriends a neighbor girl named Nancy, whose fixation with boobs, bras, and periods still confounds me weeks after I reread the book. Nancy sweeps Margaret into her friend group and all of the gossip. Our title character has to figure out how she feels about these new friends and the physical changes that are coming her way. In this episode, I get pretty personal about my own experience with middle school because it's, you know, such a magical time. Not. Also relatable to me in this book is Margaret's journey to learn about religion. Having also grown up with parents of different faiths, I was struck even as an adult by the importance of this story in the world of kids' literature. In Margaret's frequent prayers, all of which begin with, of course, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. So many people of all ages can see reflected their own experiences with asking big, maybe even scary questions. For exploring all of these topics in one short book, Judy Bloom is a total boss. I am a huge fan of this week's guest, and I am absolutely psyched to have her join us for episode 36. When I started the podcast, I really wanted to have her on the show someday, and here she is. Emma Gray is a senior reporter focused on women's issues at HuffPost and the author of A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance. She is also the co-host of the Bachelor-themed podcast Here to Make Friends, which was named a must-listen by The Daily Dot. And it's definitely a must-listen for me. Emma has appeared as an expert on The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Insider, and Entertainment Tonight. Her work has also appeared in Cosmopolitan, Nylon, and Teen Vogue. Follow Emma on Twitter and Instagram at EmmaLadyRose. Thanks, as always, to the Patreon supporters who sponsor the podcast. SSR is an independent pod, and I'm a one-girl operation, so every last dollar makes a difference. If you're interested in supporting the show and cashing in on some awesome exclusive perks, check out www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support. If you love the show, I promise that you're going to dig all of the rewards that I offer over there. Join us on social media by following at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. The episode you're about to hear is one of my personal favorites, and if you feel the same, I'd love for you to share it on social media. Insta stories are perfect for this, and leave a five-star review. Okay, friends, it's time to talk about all things God and being a lady. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Emma. Welcome to SSR. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I'm a huge fan of yours, of your book, of your podcast. So it feels really special to have you on the show. 
oh, this is going to be really fun. I'm ready to dive in. (laughs) It's a really fun book to talk about. We are talking all things Judy Bloom and Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. I'll tell you up front that we've had so many requests for this book from the SSR community. So I think our listeners are going to be pretty psyched that we're finally going there. It's just such a classic. And I had these warm, fuzzy feelings about it from when I I read it as a preteen. And there was so much I just completely didn't remember about the plot. Do you remember how old you were when you read it? I don't exactly, but I I think I was around Margaret's age. I think I was a tween when I first read it, maybe even a little younger. I think I was younger too. So in the book, Margaret is in sixth grade. She turns 12. Any woman out there listening knows that it's a really hard age. I think I was younger than sixth grade when I read it though too, because I remember being a little bit scandalized by some of it just because it seemed like so far out of my scope at the time. And I think I probably didn't pick up on a lot of things in the book because again, it was still like a few years out for me. Yeah, I might've been like nine or 10, not quite her age. That sounds about right. I'm not sure. I just know that I was definitely on the young end. Yeah, I would say nine or 10 sounds about right. I was always reading like a year or two above my grade level and just kind of always like probably slightly ahead of where I should have been content wise. So that sounds about right. What do you remember of sixth grade? Like what was sixth grade like for you? Oh gosh, sixth grade. I mean, unlike Margaret and co, I was in my first year of middle school rather than in my last year of elementary school before going to junior high. So it was, you know, I went from this elementary school where, you know, we had an assigned class and you kind of knew who everyone was. And then all of a sudden five elementary schools come together to make this big sixth grade class. And those were kind of the people that I ended up being in school with all the way through 12th grade. So it was a big transition and I think a really exciting one and also like a really anxiety provoking one. You felt clicks really, really acutely around that age. Uh, I really related to Margaret's anxiety about wanting to fit in, not wanting to be noticed too much, but noticed enough. And I think that sixth grade is really when those social anxieties start really, really coming into play, especially because people are starting to go through puberty at very different rates. Which we see a lot of in this book, and that's kind of the focus of it. My sixth grade experience was similar to Margaret's in some ways, especially because I moved in sixth grade as well. So I was the new kid, and I went from a school where sixth grade was the last year in elementary school to a school where it was the first year in middle school, and it was a few months into the school year. So I went from being like a total big fish in a small pond that I was very comfortable in to definitely a small fish in a big pond that was culturally very different from where I came from um, and definitely was around girls that were more mature than I was because again they had already been in school with middle schoolers for a few months and also I just think like the area that we moved to was a little bit more prone to like I don't know the kids just seemed older something about the town it was a very weird thing and yeah all of these weird things happening with puberty nobody's exactly at the same point and something that struck me so much in reading this book again recently was just like how excited these girls were to go through puberty and that was so not my experience in that some of the women in my family like did not have good experiences going through puberty they went through it very young and were teased for it and so I had always kind of like dreaded the prospect of like all of these things happening that were out of my control and so it struck me reading this now like why is everybody so excited for these things to happen to them. Like, why is it a contest? That was sort of my first impression of the book as an adult. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't remember feeling a particular dread or excitement about puberty. I just remember not wanting to be 
too different from everyone else. And that's what felt so relatable to me, you know, looking back on my experience as an 11, 12 year old, and then reading that experience from Judy Bloom's voice. I got my period when I was 12. And so I remember being relieved that it was like right in the middle, you know, it wasn't it wasn't super early, but I also wasn't, you know, the few of my friends who didn't get their periods till they were 14 and we were entering high school. And at that point it felt really scary. Like I, I haven't hit this milestone. Uh, and I think that's something that comes across really, really well in Are You There God? It's Me, Margaret. This just deep, deep desire to blend in at all times. And I think that's a very middle school feeling and something that you kind of get over as you grow up. Uh, and, and then you want to differentiate yourself a little bit more. You want to be noticed for your particular quirks because you feel a little bit more ownership over that identity. But when you're 11, all you want to do is be like everyone else. Yeah. And that notion that sort of everything's a conversation and a competition so that you can hopefully fit in, like everything's up to discuss because you do kind of want to gauge where you are relative to everybody around you, Exactly. which is such a hallmark of middle school. I was 15 when I got my period. Um, so by the time I got my period, it was kind of like not a topic of conversation anymore. Right. Nobody cared at all. <laughs> I think when I read this book, when I was nine or 10, it felt so much sooner to me. Like I probably got a little bit of anxiety reading it because I was like, okay, like I'm, this is probably going to happen in the next two years. But six years later, like <laughs> here we are. So I, I think reading it as an adult and like in hindsight, sort of placing where I was probably when I read it maturity wise and then placing myself probably a few years later when I was actually Margaret's age, thinking about where I was at each of those points and then knowing how like my life actually transpired from there. It's kind of funny just the way that I interpreted this book before any of that even happened. Oh, absolutely. What were your first impressions of Margaret as a character? I think one of the things that surprised me most about her was that it was hard for me to get a sense of like her real personality outside of these friends that she fell in with and like her interest in becoming a woman. Like I couldn't really pick up on that many other specifics about what kind of a kid she was. Did you feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. She felt almost a little bit flat to me, which was surprising because that's certainly not how I felt when I read it the first time. And I wonder if part of that is intentional. Like, is Margaret just meant to be an avatar for any young female reader who picks up this book? Are we just filling in the gaps as readers because we want to place ourselves in her head and kind of be her? Or are we really missing something fundamental about her character? And I'm not really sure exactly um, where I've landed on that question. I do think the fact that she is sort of like this mild-mannered girl serves two purposes. The first is that, like you said, it gives all of us as readers a chance to like project our own experiences onto her, no matter what age we're at, which obviously is what we're doing right now. But it also creates a situation where like she just blends right into the new school. The first person she meets in her neighborhood, Nancy, immediately becomes her best friend. And it's almost like she had to have that kind of easygoing person personality in order to make that so seamless because otherwise she probably would have been maybe like searching for other kinds of friends and like not sure if Nancy was really her people. Um, so I think that really helped her too to just sort of like go with the flow, which is another thing that is such a temptation. I think for most middle school kids, like it is easier to go with the flow and Margaret is such sort of like the mascot of that yearning to just sort of like do what's easiest and do what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And she, she really works hard to, 
to blend in and she wants to have all of the right answers, nothing that will cause anyone to ask a question. You know, she talks a lot about how she raises her eyebrow at people to kind of shut them down so they don't probe her anymore, which I thought was a really funny little detail. But yeah, I completely, I completely agree with your analysis. I think that makes a lot of sense. She's sort of not only an avatar for whoever's reading it, but also our window into this whole little middle school ecosystem. She can be an observer because she's so mild mannered. I think we need to talk about Nancy, like ASAP, <laughs> yeah. because I have a lot of, a lot of things to say about her. You me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Margaret, <laughs> Margaret has the luxury of moving into this new town in New Jersey. She's left New York City and she's moved to like the Burbs which is as you and I both being New Yorkers like we know that that's a common move now she's she's a New Jersey girl and she has the luxury of moving in the summer which again is different than my experience where I was like thrust into a new school two or three months in when I was in sixth grade so she has a little bit of time to like figure out who her friends are going to be and get the lay of the land and Nancy lives in the neighborhood one of my favorite moments of the first part of this book Um, and it was such a small detail but like such a sign of the times changing as as a reminder for those who don't know this book was published in 1970 the real estate agent who sold margaret's parents the house distributed some sort of a sheet to all of the families in the neighborhood and so nancy was like oh i got the sheet on you so i knew you were moving in which is just so funny and like so something that's that we would never encounter in 2019 here's here's a flyer about the new family that's moving in yeah that is just such a sweet little detail that i almost kind of just passed over the first time I reread it. I love that you pointed that out. So Nancy just kind of shows up and wants to hang out with Margaret, which did bring me back to a time when like, that's what you did. If there was a kid in your neighborhood, you wanted to check them out. You probably wanted to hang out with them. It was to some extent, I think growing up for me, like a foregone conclusion that you would at least try to have play dates with the kids in your neighborhood, even if you didn't really like them. I remember not really like loving some of the neighborhood kids, but feeling like I might as well like go ride bikes with them or something just because they were there. It's also such a luxury to be friends with people who live physically close to you because when you're a kid, especially in the suburbs and I grew up, uh, in the DC suburbs and really, you know, you can't drive, so you can't get around, uh, very far on your own, but having a neighborhood friend means that you can assert some independence. You can go over to their house and you can find the shortcuts in your neighborhood and go to the park and feel like you're making plans on your own terms, uh, while still, you know, being within the confines of your green grassy little neighborhood. And this dynamic must've been so different for Margaret too, coming from presumably like a huge apartment building in New York. We don't really in center. I mean, prime real estate there. I was like, why did this family ever move? <laughs> they really should have kept the apartment because it was probably rent controlled and Margaret and Margaret's children would still be living in it today. Yeah, it would be worth so much today. <laughs> be amazing. So yeah, like I wonder if she had friends in her building. This was probably all new to her that some girl would show up and be like, we should probably be friends. And Nancy makes quite a first impression. One of the quotes that I pulled out from Margaret in the first you know, few pages of their meeting is she says, I got the feeling that Nancy noticed everything. She immediately starts talking about how she's been practicing kissing. She has this like whole drawer of makeup that she's been using to experiment with like different looks, which is such an extreme sort of like caricature, I think, of a middle school girl, at least in my experience. Like I did not know anybody like this. And again, maybe it's because I was the new kid somewhere. And so I just never happened to find my way to a, to a group of friends that was like this. And I also, like I said, I was a little squeamish about growing up. So so I was just not attracted to this at all in Friends. But Nancy is 
so mature. And, like, as far as I could tell, Nancy's baseline was that, like, everything and everybody is sexual. Like, everybody thinks about sex all the time. Everybody's talking about sex all the time. That is sort of Nancy's worldview. Yeah, absolutely. Nancy's also sort of a little mini dictator, (laughs) which did actually ring familiar to me. Uh, There were some girls that I grew up around who certainly, like, enjoyed asserting their power within within other groups of, of young women. And that part of Nancy's character just, I was like, oh, I can remember that feeling of being bossed around by someone or just very, very slightly belittled, even by someone who purports to be a really good friend of yours. Like there's a moment where Nancy and Janie and Gretchen and Margaret are forming their little middle school girls club. And Nancy decides they're all going to have names and forces Margaret to be Mavis. <laughs> and it's just such a little dig. <laughs> she also, in one of the first scenes that they have together, she makes a point to tell Margaret that she let her borrow a bathing suit that's not one of her best. Right, like, you can keep it. I don't need it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so it's diabolical. Those little, little digs that just let... Margaret, no, like you are lucky to be friends with me. (laughs) And you can picture it. It's probably like all stretched out and like, you know, she's, it's probably two, two summers old. I sort of had some Regina George vibes from her. Like she feels a little preteen Regina to me. I know. I almost think she, she might've been in like a more popular group or she'd be one of those girls who would be friends with these girls in sixth grade. And then right when they get to junior high would just like rock it off to some, you know, higher social echelon (laughs) yeah exactly it kind of seems like she's only like friends with Janie and Gretchen because she was friends with them in fifth grade but like it doesn't make any sense that they're all still hanging out because Janie and Gretchen seem almost as uncomfortable around her as Margaret is yes I I don't know that Nancy really has she doesn't seem to have anyone in her life who feels particularly comfortable around her yeah her her parents sort of are MIA like again I sort of picked up on some like Mrs. George vibes like her mom was at the house but was like you know I don't need to be on top of you guys It was just, I didn't really get a sense of who was sort of like minding the store as far as Nancy is concerned. Nope. (laughs) The worst thing that Nancy does, um, and I definitely want to take time to talk about this, is open up this conversation about their classmate, Laura Danker. And I think this is like a really important discussion for us to have in 2019. And I say this on almost every episode, but like I understand that this book is in so many ways like an artifact of its time. It was written in 1970, but I ordered a new copy off of Amazon. They recently updated the cover in 2014, which side note is extremely controversial with a lot of essays our followers. So this book is like widely available to kids today. And so while yes, like it may be written in a way that's decades old, kids now in 2019 are still getting their hands on it. And so like the messages are still available. So I think we need to talk about a message like the one that's being sent about Laura Danker. And early on in the book, Nancy confides in Margaret that she heard that Laura Danker, who is this girl in their class who has already started wearing a bra, like she's tall, she's clearly gone through puberty much earlier than anybody else, has been going behind the grocery store, the A&P, with Nancy's brother Evan's friend Moose. So she's basically starting this rumor and talking about Laura's reputation as like the kind of girl who would go and hang out behind a store with a boy who I think is older than they are. 
yeah, I think that Moose and Evan are supposed to be 14. So 11 to 14, that's quite a big difference, you know, at that age. And it's a pretty disturbing subplot, actually. Yeah. There are these, this one girl setting up a group of girls to essentially slut shame and victimize another young woman in their class. And we see towards the end of the book, um, Margaret kind of get caught up in this idea she has about Laura without even knowing her and starting this fight that is completely Margaret's fault. And we see her reckon with those decisions a little bit, but I don't know, I would have liked to see more from Laura and I'm interested that I don't even know if I remembered her as a character really um, as an adult like she did not make an impression on me when I was reading the book and reading it again she just felt so much more important than she had when I was young and I wished that I don't know I, I wanted to see like they go to seventh grade and suddenly Margaret and Laura are friends and they tell Nancy off because she's a mean girl <laughs> I completely echo that experience. I don't remember Laura at all from when I was younger, but I was making so many notes about this subplot recently when I was reading it. Um, And I felt in general like the whole trajectory of Margaret and Nancy's friendship wasn't really concluded very well. And I think especially the way that Laura should have played a role in that. We never really get a sense of what happens. I thought that toward the end of the book, when Margaret gets paired with Laura for a class project, and they do sort of have this altercation totally Margaret's fault. I thought that the arc there was going to be that Laura and Margaret ended up being best friends within the confines of the book. I mean, we can imagine all we want that that's what happened, and I hope it is, but I really thought that we were going to get that conclusion and that they were going to realize that Nancy is the worst. I know, and I think that the book would have been better for it if we had. Instead, you're right, that part of it just sort of hangs there And we don't really get any sort of satisfying conclusion. Although I also suppose there is, you know, part of being in that middle school culture that makes going against someone like Nancy, who does seem to know so much about the world, who is such a great person to kind of have on your side and in your corner, that would be really hard for a sixth grade girl to just kind of shove away whether or not Nancy is the worst, which she is. She's definitely the worst. Yeah, objectively the worst. Objectively the worst. It seems like the thing that most bothers Margaret about her, though, is that she lied about getting her period because this little group that they formed, they call themselves the PTSs, the preteen sensations, which is its own kind of hilarity but they had all sworn that they would tell each other when they got their period normal I guess I mean again this is totally outside my own experience but they promised this is like one of the rules you have to tell everybody the moment that you get your period and when Nancy was on vacation over the summer or over holiday break or something she sent all of the girls a postcard and was just like I got it but later on we find out because Margaret's been invited to go with Nancy's family to this like fancy restaurant in New York and that's where it actually happens for Nancy and she freaks out and realizes that it's really not that glamorous to get your period. Margaret realizes that Nancy lied the whole time and like hadn't gotten it months earlier on vacation. So to me, it seems like that lie was the thing that was most upsetting to Margaret. Whereas there was a moment in her conversation with Laura where I was like, okay, maybe she's going to realize that the fact that Nancy is spreading these vicious rumors and slut shaming this poor innocent girl in their class is really the worst part about her. But I don't know that Margaret ever made the connection. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And, and that is unfortunate. Um, It feels like Nancy would definitely be the type to start a burn book and put some really horrible things about 
Laura Danker's body in there. They were even talking about things like the teacher liking Laura Danker. Like their teacher is a man. And I remember sort of the excitement of having a teacher who was a man because almost all of our teachers were women. So it was very cool if you were the one to get like the boy teacher in elementary school. So they have this young male teacher. He's probably like 22 or 23 years old. And Nancy is insistent that like he won't stop looking at Laura. She just is really like stirring a lot of shit up all the time. Yeah. Another rumor that's sort of casually thrown out there, but in retrospect is super disturbing, like making the suggestion that this teacher is trying to, you know, sexualize his students or trying to come on to his students. I mean, that's, that's really serious. And that's a thing that actually happens and is criminal. So it is weird to see it kind of casually thrown out here. I was also so struck when I realized that their teacher that like I'm almost a decade older than their teacher. <laughs> like this is the like adult or they're talking about their parents. And they're like, gosh, she's 38 and the grandma is 60, which is just not very old. <laughs> yeah. I've had that experience a lot since I started doing the podcast, especially cause like books that were written in like the fifties and sixties, a lot of the parents are like my age. And I'm like, what? What? I'm so confused. And, you know, we did holes, the book holes a few weeks ago. And the evil camp counselor who growing up, I was like, oh, he's so old, like so evil, so mean. And the guest on the show was like, no, he's probably just like some loser that like moved home after college and like needed a job. And so he just started working at this weird like labor camp. And I was like, oh, he's probably 22 also. So true. Oh, man. Yeah, it really changes your perspective yeah. reading middle grade and YA regularly. It's It's been tough emotionally. <laughs> Margaret does sort of like have some remorse about the whole thing, although we don't really get a conclusion. I pulled out a few quotes from this scene with Laura when Margaret's accusing Laura of all these horrible things that Nancy's started these rumors about. Margaret says, I was really being awful and I hadn't even planned it. I sounded like Nancy. That's when it hit me that for all I knew, Nancy made up that story about Laura or maybe Moose and Evan made it up just to brag. Yes, I bet they did. Moose was a big liar too. So she does start to realize what she's doing wrong, although it doesn't really stop her from being heinous to Laura. And then after they have this argument, she follows Laura to confession at church, which we definitely need to get into some of like the religious conversations yeah. as well. But she follows Laura to confession. It's kind of her last ditch effort to figure out her own spirituality as part of this report she's doing for class. And after that experience, she makes what I tend to think is the most like important and vulnerable prayer of the whole book. When she's praying to God, as usual, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. She says, I'm definitely the most horrible person who ever lived, and I really don't deserve anything good to happen to me. I picked on Laura Danker just because I felt mean. I took it all out on her. I really hurt Laura's feelings. Why did you let me do that? I've been looking for you, God. I looked in temple. I looked in church. And today I looked for you when I wanted to confess, but you weren't there. I didn't feel you at all. Not the way I do when I talk to you at night. Why do I only feel you when I'm alone? And so I think I think that's so demonstrative of like being 11 years old. Where like you know that you do shitty things. You can feel yourself being a bad person. So much of it is hormones, if we're being honest. You just feel like out of control of so many things in your own life. And you're looking for like anything to hold on to. It's very confusing. Yes. Oh my gosh. This prayer is sort of heart-wrenching to reread. And it is nice to get that, those moments of self-reflection on Margaret's part, to have her recognize and sort of start to reckon with the fact that, yeah, she was just feeling mean. She just wanted to lash out at someone and Laura Danker was right there. And she doesn't even know this girl. And yet 
she has become this sort of vessel for her and her girlfriend's anxieties about not developing quickly enough or not being pretty enough or not being desirable enough or fearing, you know, standing out and also wanting to stand out. And it's interesting to just get her inner monologue in this really, really honest way. And then, of course, that extra layer of so much about religion in here. And so much of the way that she does reflect on herself is through this relationship with God that she doesn't even quite know how to define. I'll say one more thing about Laura Danker before we move on because it really jumped out at me. Um, And again, we don't really get a clear resolution about her relationship with Margaret, but she is very top of mind for me when I think about this book. There's a scene where the whole class is invited to a party at one of the boys in the class's house and they play all of these kissing games, which again, very far removed from my own experience. I don't know that I just like wasn't invited to parties or what, but I never played spin the bottle once in my life. Oh my gosh, I definitely did. I think I was just kind of a loser. I don't know. I was mostly with, I feel like most of my um, awkward sexual development game stuff was with my like hippie Jewish summer camp friends. Um, so, so there's a lot of like, so-and-so should go like touch tongues with this person or like spin the bottle and then like open mouth kiss for two seconds and like just the most mortifying, mortifying things. And no one knew what they were doing, but like just, yeah, just yeah. incredible to look back on. <laughs> yeah. I think you had to be a camp kid to experience yeah. some of this, which I wasn't, but they're all in the basement at the friend's house and they start playing these kissing games. One of which is like, two minutes in a closet or something of that nature variation on seven minutes in heaven yeah and they start pairing off they start like I think they're drawing names to figure out who's going to go with who into the closet and Laura Danker is paired up with Philip Leroy or Leroy um, who is sort of like the hot shot of the class all of the PTSs are obsessed with him he's at the top of all of their list of the boys that they want to kiss and hang out with and we don't get a lot of details obviously about what happens in the closet because the book is told from Margaret's perspective but there is a line where she says as something to the effect of like they came out of the closet Philip was really smiling and Laura definitely was not and I think that now just jumped out at me in like such a visceral way because you can assume that Laura as someone who physically stands out from the rest of her peers is probably grappling with being sexualized all the time and grappling with being mistaken for someone who is older and who has a higher maturity level and a higher level of development and sexual development than she actually does because she is at the end of the day also an 11 year old girl Uh, And I think that this is something that happens to all young women at some point. There is sort of a moment where your body develops in a certain way or you cross that threshold and you contain some of those markers of that burgeoning adulthood. And then you step into a world that is hostile to women's bodies, that objectifies women. And, you know, I think most young women can remember the year, the month or the day that they first started getting catcalled and what that felt like and what it what it feels like to feel like you are on display and that your body um, exists for the consumption of other people rather than, you know, for your own actions. And I think that's why Laura Danker, despite being kind of 
unexplored is a character that resonates with us as adult readers. It was interesting to me that Judy Bloom kind of put that in there. It's this, it's literally a sentence, you know, yeah. in this book. It was in 1970 that she included this line, and I would think that at that time that was, like, very racy. Um, so I just think it's worth a mention, especially because the boy involved, Philip, is clearly a pig. Like, he pinches yeah. Margaret on her birthday and is like, a pinch to grow an inch, and you know where you need that inch. He sucks. He's the reason that we're dealing with Me Too right now. Um, little boys like him who grow up to be men that are abusive and horrible. I am sort of impressed with Judy Bloom for including that tiny little line that I think mostly adult women can relate to. Yeah, well, I agree. So let's transition out of all of this sort of like puberty and period talk into the other super important part of this book. I would say it's sort of like a 50-50 split in my mind about like, in terms of what Margaret's thinking about, about half of her mind is very focused on her body changing and wanting to be cool and to fit in and to like not be behind everybody else in terms of puberty. And then the other half of her concern is focused on religion because she's in the unique situation in a situation that I actually very much related to of having really not been raised with much direction spiritually because her parents are of different spiritual backgrounds. And so I remember reading this as a kid and being so excited because I'd never read a book about a little girl who was in that kind of a situation. So that I think sticks out to me more from my childhood reading experience because I related to that piece of Margaret's story so much more than like the boob and period stuff. (laughs) I'm trying to, I was trying to remember how I felt about that part of the plot when I was younger. Um, and I, I'm Jewish, not super observant, but I, I identify pretty strongly with my Jewish identity and I was raised Jewish. And I think I remember feeling some sort of weird knee jerk, like affinity for her Jewish grandma. Like I wanted her to like that grandma better. I wanted that part of the storyline to resonate with her more because I wanted my identity affirmed in some way. And that's not at all how I felt reading it now, but it's weird to admit and probably not, you know, not like my proudest instinct, but I wonder if that also speaks to the fact that, you know, I went to, you know, public school, really big public schools. And I was always, you know, one of fewer than 10 Jewish kids in the the grade, maybe even fewer than that out of, you know, 500. So I think when you have an identity, whether that's, you know, being no religion or being a religious minority or having interfaith parents that feels again, like you're differentiated from the crowd in some way, the instinct is to almost protect that identity or like want someone else to tell you that that identity is, is not just okay, but good. And I think when you're growing up, like religion is such a, it's more of a social experience, much more than it is now. Like I remember being much more insecure about my lack of religion when I was in elementary school. I remember in second grade, like all of my Catholic friends had their first Holy Communion and they all got to wear like fancy white dresses. And I was jealous of that. And then years later in middle school, all of my Jewish friends, because I happened to move into a very Jewish area, they were all were getting bar and bat mitzvah. And so that was the new sort of like social scene, everybody going to Hebrew school and then planning their bar and bat mitzvahs. And like, what are you going to wear to the temple portion? What are you going to wear to the party? And what are you going to buy everybody? You know, I bought so many Tiffany necklaces when my mom did. Oh my goodness. The Tiffany necklaces and the chain link little bracelets. Yep. Yeah. 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 My mom like firmly did not believe in giving kids checks as their gift, which in hindsight, I'm like, that's actually not a bad 
plan, mom. Um, so we, our move was always to get people like, you know, a little bracelet from Tiffany. We must have bought so many, but like that was sort of a point of insecurity for me growing up because church or temple or whatever your house of worship of choice was kind of became like a secondary social life. And I didn't have that. And I felt weird about it growing up. Whereas now I definitely have moments where I wish I had a little bit more religious direction, but it doesn't feel as ever present in my life. So I just really related to Margaret in that way. Yeah. I think in adulthood, it's very much like what, what is meaningful to you Mm -hmm. in terms of spirituality, religion, one religious identity can mean so many different things. Like my Judaism is probably extremely different from a lot of other Jews in New York and there are a lot of Jews in New York but yeah it it was very much a just another way to feel connected to a group of people and to something especially when when you're younger it's interesting to kind of think back to like the the politics of going to Hebrew school and being a part of this other this other little community and having to then navigate new um, social dynamics And for a little bit more background, Margaret's mother was raised Christian and her father was raised Jewish. They fell in love and neither of their sets of parents particularly approved of the relationship, but they ended up getting married and Margaret's maternal grandparents, so her mom's parents, were so upset about the marriage and the fact that their daughter had chosen to marry a Jewish man that they completely dropped out of the family. So at this point when we meet Margaret... She's estranged from these grandparents. She's never met them. She's never even spoken to them. She learns later on that her mother has been sending them holiday cards, but she really has no relationship or or even knowledge of them at all, whereas her father's mother has kind of stayed involved, although she makes plenty of side comments about, like, we should be raising her Jewish. Like, she seems like a nice Jewish girl to me. So that's kind of, like, the situation when we enter Margaret's life. And for me, it was flipped in that my mom is Jewish and my dad is Christian. And um, my parents got divorced when I was very, very young. I was two years old when they got divorced. And it just sort of like the whole religion thing with me, I think both of my parents just were like not touching that with her because they didn't want it to create like a tension with the other parent. And so my half sisters were raised in church and I, you know, kind of like tag along because I was a kid and what else was I going to do? But for me, I just, I always felt very awkward about religion because it felt so loaded. So I had this extra tension, I think, on top of what Margaret was dealing with. Like she didn't want to disappoint her grandmother and theoretically like her other grandparents, wherever they were. And she didn't want to throw off the balance of her household because she knew that it was something that her parents felt very strongly about not endorsing. But for me, I was like, if I go to either side here, somebody's going to get pissed and it's going to get awkward. And so I just appreciated that there that there's a plot line like this out there for middle grade readers, YA readers, whatever you want to call it. I, I really appreciate this story. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And I can't really recall any other book that I read as a young person tackling religion in this nuanced of a way. Um, and I also kind of loved this like total subtle endorsement of atheism. I was like, hell yes, Judy Bloom, this is awesome. Like you don't have to believe in God or you can have a relationship with God that's not attached to any, you know, formalized religion, or you can have family members that are religious in various capacities, and you can try those things out, and you can see what brings you meaning, and you can see what community might actually enhance your life. And I I loved the idea that in 1970, this was a message going out to 
all of these kids. And it's it's kind of a, a lovely and timeless one. And Margaret's method to start to explore these <laughs> communities that you mentioned is to write a paper about it. Like they're assigned a report, they're allowed to pick whatever they want, which I kind of loved because that never would have happened in real life. No, like, no teacher is going to be like, whole year. <laughs> do whatever you want. It's basically like an independent study in sixth grade. And it's very unclear like what the point is. There's no clear format. She There's seems no to write, yeah, she writes like a two page report and all of these other kids are turning in like huge binders. There's just like not a lot of instruction given I to these kids. I would have been really mad if I had worked on a whole binder and some other kid comes in and writes like one page handwritten letter. And you know she got an A because it yeah. was so like groundbreaking that she would think to do something a little bit less structured. I would have been mad too because I would have absolutely had like a laminated folder with charts and tabs. It would have been Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was a total type A, insanely anxious student. So like there would have been like color printing and a title page and like a lot of carefully chosen fonts. I would have been, it would have been a nightmare. Yeah, I loved a report growing up. Like (laughs) give me a chance to do a report and I'll blow your mind with my PowerPoint skills. You like don't even know. So I loved that her approach was just to kind of like start going to different houses of worship and one of my favorite scenes is when she goes to temple with her grandmother and she's really close with her grandmother I actually had like a little bit of an emotional moment with this book because I lost my grandmother in September and she reminds me very much of the grandmother in this book she was my Jewish grandmother and also refused to ride public transportation, would have totally gotten me a subscription with her to Lincoln Center. And like, that would have been her thing. She loved art. She loved music, kind of fancy, you know, like very into looking her best at all times. But she spoke to me in a lot of the ways that Sylvia in the book speaks to Margaret, like you're my special girl. They just had this like very special relationship that reminded me very much of the dynamic that I had with my grandmother. So I I just sort of enjoyed like their dynamic throughout the whole book. But she takes Margaret to Temple and Margaret's making all these hilarious observations. Like she's counting the number of hats, which is something an 11 year old would totally do sitting in Temple. Like I might do going to any religious service right now. <laughs> it's, services are long in any religion. <laughs> and I loved the moment when, like, Margaret's like, okay, everything seems to be going great. Like, this is fine. And then her grandmother goes to introduce her to the rabbi, and Margaret freaks out. And I so felt her pain because this was how I tended to feel growing up, like, when I went to temple with my mom or to church with my dad, where I was like, if I sit here, it's fine. Like, I'm good here. I'll listen. I'll take it in. Like, if you make me start to engage, this is wrong. I can't, like... I'm betraying somebody. I know somebody's going to be upset about this. Like, strike me down. This is not good. So that kind of made me laugh because I, I could just like feel her discomfort through the pages. Oh yeah, it, it's really palpable when you're reading it. She's like just wants to shrink away and disappear, and now she has to confront this religious figure who's obviously in some way trying to sell her on on their religion. It sounded very stressful. She has no idea what she's supposed to be doing there. She's like, I I know that you're a rabbi. You seem to be in charge here. But like, what happens when I talk to you? Am I going to somehow like have to sign something? Am I now involved here? What am I doing? How do we move forward from this? And yeah, and you can feel her, her desperation to want to feel something really profound when she attends these services. And I also love how she observes the sameness. Mm-hmm. of all of them to an extent like there are all these big rooms where people gather and go through the motions of some sort of ritual and they're dressed in ways that feel kind of reminiscent of each other uh, and I just liked 
seeing those those parallels because it's you know it's so easy to divide people along the basis of religious identity when in fact a lot of these faiths kind of take from the same bucket ultimately. Yeah, we're a lot more similar than we are different in so many ways. To your point, like this feeling of her, I think she was just, she wanted to feel something and I, I relate to that more in my adult life. So I think some of these themes that Judy Bloom is playing with are so mature. Like as I've gotten older, I think I've been more interested in figuring out like, do I want to be somebody who's more spiritual? Like maybe, I don't know. And so when I have gone to houses of worship with my family, I've been like, okay, like maybe this time I'll feel it. Like maybe, maybe finally I'm going to understand. I don't have to worry about what my parents think anymore. But even now I come out of these services and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I felt it. And Margaret says that so explicitly in a way that I sometimes feel like we don't feel comfortable saying as adults. And that's the beauty of an 11 year old. Like she has no filter and she's speaking to God in this very personal way, saying to him, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And she's just telling him in a very straightforward manner, like, I don't feel you. And I think that's sometimes a hard thing for adults to admit. And so we need a preteen like Margaret to actually admit that that's the case for a lot of us. Absolutely. It's, it's nice to tap into your younger self and kind of channel that that almost radical honesty that just kind of slips out of young people at that age. You know, as you get older, you get more worried about like, what impact is saying something like that going to have around other, you know, on other people? What is that going to say about me and my character and my like spiritual depth? And I agree with you that when I was 11, I don't, actually remember caring if I felt anything. I just, when I went to a religious service, it was like, okay, you just got to get to the end and then you can like go have some snacks. And this is a thing that like your parents want you to do. So you have to go with them. Um, and it's only as an adult now that I have the ability to choose if and when I go to a house of worship. And I really only go, um, to like you know, a smattering of high holiday services, but I, I go on Yom Kippur every year. And that has become something that's meaningful to me because I've actually chosen to go. I go to like a very like lefty community synagogue in Brooklyn where they you know, the service is conducted in front of a Black Lives Matter sign. And, and, and that feels actually meaningful. Whereas I went to a lot more religious services than that as a kid. And I don't remember feeling one way or the other or being particularly concerned with, you know, my reaction to those things. It was, it was a social situation. Yeah. Like Margaret, you're just kind of looking around and observing things and hoping for the end. I have this very vivid memory of being in temple when I was probably like seven or eight on Yom Kippur. And for those who don't know, is the day that you're meant to fast, to repent. And I remember I was sitting behind a kid my age and at the end of the service, he turned to his dad and he was like, okay, like now we can go to IHOP, right? And I thought it was so funny because for some reason, like I was on my high horse about like, I understand that you're not supposed to eat on Yom Kippur, which I probably wasn't fasting realistically. Like my mom doesn't fast. Isn't it weird that I still have that memory, but I, I couldn't tell you anything else about any other experience I had in a temple. Because like you said, as a kid, I was just kind of like watching things. It was social. It didn't mean anything to me. I was just like kind of feeling superior to this kid who thought he could go eat pancakes on Yom Kippur. <laughs> You're like, don't you know the meaning of this? I You're should, doing it wrong. You sir. should be repenting harder. Yeah. <laughs> you need to repent. So Margaret's conclusion kind of at the end of the book is that 
she is done with it. She doesn't want to worry about it anymore. When her mom's parents decide to show up and visit, there's this huge blow up about religion, which in the same way that I was mystified in the first half of the book, that like the baseline is that everybody's talking about sex all the time. I thought it was interesting that in the second half of the book, the baseline was that like everybody's always going to ask you about your religious situation all the time. Like it felt like that conversation happened really quickly with the grandparents. And I know that that was like a big point of contention with them, but it still seemed like it came up really fast. There's a huge blow up among the grandparents and the parents. Margaret's like, it seems like this is way more trouble than it's worth. I don't want to associate with any religion. Like I don't see how I can choose a camp. And she, as part of her report to school, is like, if I ever have kids, I'm going to make a different decision than my parents did. And I'm going to make sure that my children know early, like what they're supposed to be. And she, at that point is like, I don't really feel any differently. Like, I don't know where I belong. Kind of heartbreaking, but also, also realistic. Like why would you necessarily be able to figure out, you know, if you're given very little guidance, what you do feel about something as big as religion and spirituality when you're 11? You know, I think that's something that probably takes a long time to grapple with. And that even if you are given direction in terms of how to identify or what to believe when you're young, like often that that shifts and morphs as you get older. But I agree that the conversation was happening like all the time. And I do not remember talking about religion that much as an 11 year old. Yeah, you're either, you're either talking about boobs or you're talking about faith. Like there's no other option. <laughs> Yeah, like who knew? I'm like, what is this community in Jersey? What's in the water? Yeah, I think I mostly was talking about like VOC and whether or not I was going to carry like a backpack or a purse at school. Oh, I mean, those are big, big questions. Yeah, like are Marissa and Ryan going to stay together or are they going to break up? You never know. And that's why that was what needed to be talked about at lunch rather than (laughs) if I'd had my period and what religion my parents were. Yeah, certainly, certainly not talking about what religion my parents were at lunch. It was more like, is there going to be a food fight today in our middle school cafeteria under or over? Is it cookie day or is it not cookie day? Can I get a personal pizza today? Should I (laughs) get the Pop-Tarts? Yes. The answer is always yes. Or it's like, can this person go break up with my fake boyfriend that I had inexplicably for two months, even though we never spoke today? Much bigger questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much more related to like our place in the universe than religion. But yeah, I think it's it's great that like the lesson is kind of that there's not always a, a resolution. I think I'm like a testament to that. Like you don't always figure out at some point in your life, am I going to be Christian like my mom or Jewish like my dad or vice versa? Like it's much more complicated than that. And I also think that Margaret's sort of like final report where she's explaining how she feels about all of this is a lesson in the fact that like adults aren't perfect and that they mess up because maybe I only read it this way now as an adult, but I sort of was picking up on this subtle undertone of like my parents screwed this up. Like they should have made more of a plan because when I'm a parent, I'm going to do things differently. And like, it was wrong of them to assume that it would be fine for them to sweep it under the rug. And this was kind of messed up. And that's something that I've picked up on a lot of the books that we've read for SSR is this idea that like, at some point along the line, kids learn that parents and adults are fallible. And they're not always going to get everything right, even if you think that they walk on water. And that is totally the role that her maternal grandparents coming in plays in the book. It exposes certain fissures between her mom and her dad and exposes their own insecurities. And the fact that, you know, if we think about it realistically, these are two people who are in their 30s talking about their their parents 
I'm in my 30s. I still have really complicated relationships with my parents. And if, you know, they decided to come to town, that would definitely be something that I, I felt like I needed to work around, you know, their schedule or, and, and I have a great relationship with my parents in general, you know, not even one where they haven't been speaking to me for 14 years. And I love that we get Margaret again as the observer to the things her parents haven't figured out. And I also kind of appreciated that there wasn't some pat resolution to her maternal grandparents coming to visit. It wasn't like, oh, now we've done an about face and we accept you completely and we're going to instantly get close to Margaret. Because sometimes in life, people are selfish and people pull away from you and people are estranged. And that doesn't necessarily go away because of a Christmas card. And it being okay that not all families are perfect. I think so much like pop culture that you read as a kid or that you watch as a kid, it's like the perfect family. Everybody loves each other. Everybody gets along. And I think that's changed more recently as families have begun to look more different, more frequently. But I would think in 1970, like the idea of an 11 year old watching her mother fight this viciously and like be involved with all this drama with her grandparents and her parents, that was probably fairly unheard of. And it is worth noting that this book has for obvious reasons, for many obvious reasons, been a target of a lot of censors. A lot of school libraries don't carry it. A lot of people have serious problems with it. And I think even outside of sort of like the overt sexual content, um, if you want to call it that, there's these ideas of like, this is a little girl that's involved in what, especially in 1970, I would imagine were considered extremely adult issues. Yeah. Um, We also just have to talk about the must increase our bust. Oh my God. Chant because that was one thing that I remembered so completely from my first read. Yeah. (laughs) It was like the one takeaway is that there is an exercise and a chant that probably don't work, but maybe you should say it over and over again until you get breath. Yeah. I don't know where that, that was stuck in my mind too. And it was one of those things like I couldn't remember where. I had picked it up from, but this is so embarrassing, but we got a puppy in September and when he was really small, I used to like, I don't know, sometimes I make my puppy dance around. Is that, is that, is that so wrong? So I used to do this thing where I'd like move his little arms up and down and say like, we must, we must, we must increase our bus. And my husband was like, what the hell? is that? And I was like, I honestly don't know, but he looked so cute doing it. And I, it just made me laugh every time. This is all extremely humiliating and my poor dog. But now I remember that it's from, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Yeah. I mean, I think any person who is, who read this book as a child probably has that chance somewhere in the depths of their brains, just like waiting to come out. The very depths. Well, I (laughs) I was reading a bunch of think pieces from women of various ages, and I'll include links to all of these in the show notes, but a lot of women and pretty much everybody has this very fond memory of the book. And some of them talked about how, especially in households where like certain issues were not discussed about puberty, like this book was sort of a lifeline for little girls. And I think it's important to note that obviously, especially now, there's a lot lacking in this book. This is not like sufficient as a, a full primer no, on sex ed guys. <laughs> no, no. And so it kind of concerns me that there are some think pieces out there being like, you know what? Like if this is all you get, it's fine because it's definitely not fine. But I do think it's interesting that like it really does hold such a special place in so many people's hearts. And I can see how if you really lived in a house that was extremely conservative and you had zero resources to give you a hint about what was coming with your body, like this is at least a good place to start. 
And they even have a line, sort of a throwaway line in there where Margaret is complaining about having to go to like a health class. And her mother says something to the effect of, I know you already know this information, but there are some households where the parents didn't talk to, you know, their daughters about these things. So this is for them. Uh, And I thought that that was an interesting nod to the lack of sex education in this country, though our, we have a big problem in schools as well as outside of it. Appalling, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. So all in all, do you think that this experience of rereading Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret recently for the podcast has made you love and appreciate the book all the more, or do you feel that it's ruined it in some way for you? It was a little bit of a mixed bag, if I'm being honest. In some ways, I, I picked up on things that were so nuanced and beautiful and lovely that I probably hadn't picked up on as a kid. And I still had that really nostalgic, uh, warm and fuzzy feeling ultimately about it. But it also, you know, there were, there were gaps for me sometimes and Margaret didn't really pop the way that I remembered her popping when I first read it. And I just really disliked Nancy. And that was a stuff tough pill to swallow when this is supposed to be the closest friend to to the protagonist. So I don't know. I think it, more than anything, it just complicated my understanding of the book. And I still think that it's something I would have no reservations recommending to young women to read. I think it is kind of this like formative piece of literature. And there's a real, a reason that it keeps getting reprinted over and over and over again, even though it is some parts of it feel dated, you know, that all the references to attaching sanitary napkins to your <laughs> underwear, but the, the overarching themes still ring true yeah I agree I think I wish there had been some more resolution with the relationships because I think friendships in middle school are such a hard thing to navigate I think almost more difficult probably than at any other time in your life and so oh my god middle school is a hellhole it's brutal I had really no friends in middle school and I think it would have been nice for us to actually see Margaret navigate that tension with Nancy a little bit more deftly for her to actually make peace with Laura in the way that I think she was on the verge of doing. I agree. For me, it just really brought me back to the fact that like this book explored some things for me that I felt, I felt very lonely in some of these issues as a kid. And so it was nice to realize 20 years later that like I had this book and it probably meant a lot to me to be able to read it. So that was nice. But it also just kind of made me laugh thinking about like, were people really this into puberty? Because remembering again that I was dreading it. I would like sleep on my stomach because I didn't want to get boobs. Like I was terrified of puberty. And so it just made me laugh thinking that like other people had such a different kind of experience. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> Middle school. Yeah. And for listeners, just, just so everybody knows, there's a movie coming, which is very exciting. Um, when I went to search for resources and research to talk about all of this with Emma, pretty much every result in the first like four pages of Google are about the forthcoming movie. For a long time, Judy Bloom has not allowed rights to be sold for a movie, um, and it's coming, so that's very exciting. I'm so curious to see how they do it, what the cast looks like. You know, I hope maybe there are some non-white characters in the movie version. Hopefully. <laughs> that's definitely something that stood out to me on reread. Yeah. It's the team behind um, the Haley Steinfeld movie, The Edge of Seventeen. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's doing it. And I guess Judy Bloom saw it and loved it and was like, go with God, you can do this. Wow. Yeah, so that will be exciting. Hopefully in the next year or two, we'll hear more about that. Before we close out, Emma, I'm curious if there's anything that you're reading now or that you've read recently outside of middle grade and YA that you would like to recommend to our listeners. 
Well, I read a lot of nonfiction recently, in part because in my job as a journalist who covers women's issues, that's a lot of the books that I get sent um, that I have to read for work, and I also just really enjoy them. So in the last few months, I loved Rebecca Tracer's book, Good and Mad. I think it's brilliant. Um, And then I just started finally reading The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory. And that's a really like sweet, fun read that everyone has been telling me to read for a long time. And I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it yet, but I'm like excited to be a part of the conversation finally. Good. Well, I'll include links to both of your recommendations in the show notes. I'll also include a link to Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And finally, a link to your book, A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance, which is an important book, I think, for everybody to pick up and to have. And I will also include a link to your podcast, Here to Make Friends. I talk about it all the time. Anybody who knows me knows that it's like the highlight of my week when your new episodes come out. Honestly, at this point, like your podcast is probably 75% of why I'm still watching The Bachelor. I'm so honored. And also ABC should pay us for the number of people who say that. <laughs> Cause honestly, I'm like, I, I just have to be part of the conversation. I don't necessarily need to watch Colton I mean, ponder no one, his virginity. No to watch Colton ponder his virginity. But yeah. um, we do all need to talk about it desperately. So I want to know what you and Claire have to say about it. That's more important. Well, I am extremely honored. Um, You have no idea what this means to me. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. Bye, Emma. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.